Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest for this episode is Phyllis Chesler. She is the author of An American Bride in Kabul, published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and I'm delighted to have you on the show, Phyllis. I'm pleased to be here. So this is a memoir about something that happened to you about 50 years ago. Yes. And yet, it's taken you a while to write it, and I was struck by something in the introduction, where you talk about how 9-11 had changed the book that it would be possible for you to write, which seems to suggest to me that this is something that you've been thinking about writing for at least a dozen years or more. Absolutely. I had wanted to put my story in the context of other Western travelers who yearned eastward and who were drawn by the Islamic world. But as the persecution of Muslim women and dissidents became surreal, I then decided, no, I had to then be the bridge because my American feminism was forged in, that ver in the fires of Afghanistan. Then we have 9-11, and bin Laden hatched this plan there, holding the entire civilian world hostage in a much larger way than the way in which I was held hostage in Kabul. And let's backtrack, actually, so for, for listeners, and talk about what it was that happened to you in Kabul in the early 1960s. I met a wonderful man in 1959 at college who was uh, sophisticated and debonair and a little older than me and from Afghanistan, and who conducted himself as if he was a prince, and he certainly stepped out of the pages of a fairy tale. As far as I was concerned, I was just a Jewish kid from Brooklyn on a college scholarship. And so we fell in with each other, two bohemian rebel souls. And I knew him for more than two years. Then he said, if you want to travel with me and meet my family, we have to marry. And we didn't invite anybody. We just got married civilly and took off across Europe. And I thought I would have a grand adventure. And I had no intention of staying there forevermore. I discovered when the plane landed, to my shock, that his father had three wives and 21 children, and that I was expected to live with my mother-in-law and other women in the women's quarters, which is known as the harem. It's a domestic harem. I couldn't leave. I couldn't just go out and visit this awesome country with towering mountains. So. Here I was with a man I thought I knew very well, and clearly he had deceived me. He didn't mention any of this. And when they said, we need your American passport, it's just a formality, I resisted, but everyone leaned on me, him especially, saying, oh, don't worry, it'll be okay. Of course, I never saw that passport again. And that meant that I became the citizen of no country and the property of a large, wealthy, polygamous Afghan family. You were, the condition that you were placed under, the term for it was uh, purda. Purda, it, it's the term, it means seclusion. A harem, haram, it, it comes from a word that means forbidden. That means forbidden to men who are not male relatives. The best, most fabled Western adventurers, women and men, well, men certainly, never got to meet the women of any of those Muslim countries because they were veiled and cloistered. Women travelers did. 
visit harems, and there are wondrous portraits in the 19th century of such visits. For example, on visiting a harem in Cairo, and then one in Turkey, the Muslim women, very apathetic, on opium, listless, bored, felt very sorry for the British visitor, because she had to wear these tight corset stays, and they were wearing free-flowing garments. They felt that they were freer. And what's worse, they had no one to mind them. The British visitor came on her own and left by herself, who was taking care of her. And the women in the harem viewed her plight as tragic. And this is an interesting difference culturally. During the time that you were there, trapped in your husband's family's home, subject to the abuse of your mother-in-law and ultimately your husband as well, this went on for, for months, and you finally did make it out, but only pretty much at the brink of death. I was there five months, and I began to count the days. Then I began to count the hours. I did go to the American Embassy, and they turned me away. I said, I want to go home. And they said, where's your passport? I said, they took it from me, which was pro forma and is, in general, what happens to foreign wives to such countries. So... I began to hatch different escape plans. I had one in the works, and I became deathly ill. I mean, first I had dysentery. And any traveler to Central Asia, worth their their metal, they get dysentery. And you get parasites, and you get malaria. It proves that you had the grand adventure. But then I got hepatitis, and that was a very serious kind of hepatitis. I was told later that every other foreigner had died that season. I lived, and I managed to get out. I got out and did not look back. I have to. I want to stress something. I don't view myself as a victim. I view myself as a survivor and as in possession of a writer's treasure. Because if you survive this, it's a very expensive education. The best educations are. You, if you think about it, and if you pay attention to what's happening in the world around you, at this moment in time, I feel I've got some important things that are useful and crucial to tell others about. Yes, you know, I loved him and he did me wrong. Yes, the cultures collided. Yes, he deceived me. Yes, he abused me. Yes, he loved me, and he wanted to keep me there, and he did not want me to leave, and he refused to get a divorce. And he honestly believed that the two of us could modernize this country. And he worked really hard trying to do that through the 60s and the 70s. And he then escaped after the Soviet invasion. I don't want to paint him as a complete villain. He was as much a fool as I was. He really thought he could bring an American infidel Jewish girl back to this 110% Muslim country, no longer Buddhist, no longer Zoroastrian, no longer pagan, and that we would lead the high life and lead the country into the future. So he was as much a dreamer as I was, and maybe, maybe he thought that he would provide me with a grand life and that I would be foolish to return to America to an ordinary life. I think that that may be a penetral stumbling block for some readers to go with your feminist fans who are going to look at this. Yeah, I mean, your interpretation of his life is very charitable, as, you, as you've just described it. You know, I think a lot of people would look at this and say, 
this guy is an abuser. All the stuff about, oh, he loves you. It's like, well, he just doesn't want to get you out of his clutches. The, the behavior he just, uh, you describe, even when you see him years later, when he's made it to the States, I mean, he's a misogynist. He's an anti-Semite. You know, there's a point where you, you describe him as, you know, here I am still talking to my jail. And I think for a lot of people, the fact that this guy is simultaneously your jailer, and as you also describe him, your mad dreamer soulmate, is ah, a very important question. First, I want my feminist readers to understand I was 18 when I met him, turned 21 in Kabul. I was not yet a feminist, although I was using the word patriarchal in my diaries. And it certainly shaped the kind of feminist I became. But that was a bit later on in life. In America, he's not my jailer. I am free here. It is my country. He came as an immigrant. And America has a noble tradition, and also Jews have a noble tradition, of not turning our backs on immigrants. So when he came to my door, he didn't come looking for money. He didn't come. He actually wanted me to write about his story. And at the time, I couldn't. He was too angry, and I was not well enough acquainted with the history of this culture and country, as I am now, because I've read hundreds and hundreds of books now. So he wronged me a long time ago, far away. When he came here, I was already writing my third or fourth book. I was a professor both of psychology and women's studies, he posed no danger to me. He is not an anti-Semite. He became increasingly an anti-Zionist, as did the rest of his family. And the reason this is important is they don't go to mosques. This is politically correct, secular media drift. This is a belief in big lies that not just Muslims, but a lot of people share. Alas, today. I think I did take a kind of a pride in being able to forge a cordial enough, somewhat formal, somewhat distant, but continuing relationship with someone who I was once married to. And I think that's a compassionate thing, and that's a decent thing to do. I don't have to hate him forevermore. I would see him and his family. I rarely saw him alone. And I became friendly with his wife, maybe twice a year. I introduced my son to his children, and they knew each other a bit as they grew up. I thought that was nice. That was an expanded horizon. So I'm shocked that feminists, who probably have never risked their freedom on behalf of another woman's freedom, as I do all the time, would judge me harshly for revealing my youthful indiscretion and my adult compassion. As you've alluded to there, the experiences in Kabul, although you weren't a feminist then, and it took some time even after you made it back to the States, the experience of what you describe, and I think it's you know a really apt term for what you went through there in terms of gender apartheid, those experiences were... I guess they were your road to Damascus. <laughs> yeah, it was a good in terms, in terms of feminism. Yes. First, I was able to see versions of gender apartheid back in America, mm -hmm. which I had not noticed before. I also understood now that being young and female and attractive don't mean anything 
that you could lose your citizenship in a minute. And I understood that America was not the worst country in the world, that this is the land of libraries and liberty. And compared to Afghanistan or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, we are way ahead. I also learned something even more important, but it took a while for me to clarify this. I believe in universal standards of human rights. I am not a cultural relativist, so I'm not one of those feminists who will say, well, you know, it's really a religious right to wear an ambulatory body bag known as the burqa or niqab, face veiling, face masking. Who are we to judge? We've been such colonialists. Excuse me. Islam has a very long history of imperialism and colonialism and conversion by the sword and slavery, which continues to this day, and apartheid. And they're not guilty about it. They have not yet, as a culture, or as many cultures, addressed that as Americans and Westerners have. White, Western, imperialist feminists are supposed to keep their hands off issues like stoning, like genital mutilation, like full face veiling, like honor murder, because that's seen incorrectly as racism. I see it clearly as sexism and as barbarism. And while I may not be able to save everyone, I know that the Muslim dissidents and feminists with whom I work welcome my presence and my support and are totally flabbergasted that Western feminists are pondering whether they have the right to make strong statements against atrocities. In bringing your experiences to bear on, on this activism, it's something that clearly has been a background impetus for you throughout your, your feminist career. And I want to circle back to something we talked about at the beginning about your resistance to telling this story for others to hear in the memoir. And even as you're writing this, you talk in, at the beginnings of some chapters, I have put off writing this for decades, and I'm still... You know, it's something that it's just so hard for you to, that you've been grappling with all this time. And I'm, I'm curious about what's finally sort of broke down the resistance. I felt it was time. Also, I've been a psychotherapist. One doesn't easily revisit painful times. And one doesn't wish to expose one's really youthful, not just indiscretions, but foolishness to the max. Mm -hmm. And I have written some articles about this, but not with this detail and depth and continuity, because to revisit it was painful. I didn't want to offend or deeply shame an Afghan family who are American citizens now, and I've changed all their names. Nevertheless, I wanted to tell the truth, but I wanted to be as kind as possible, and I hope I've achieved that. I also had to reveal that I was like so many others in life, you know, an idiot, a fool, easy to deceive, filled with illusions. I also, in terms of having to get out, I was pregnant and had my husband or his family knew this, if they found this out, then I would have been trapped there forever. I would have had a child if we both lived because I was so sick. I would have had a child trapped there forever. 
So I was ready to walk out with the nomads, like James Mishnah's caravan. Somebody told me he once heard something of my story, although his heroine is an unpleasant creature and nothing like me, I hope. So I was desperate to leave, and I was uh, hobbled by illness. I mean, you don't see, now I understand that a woman in a similar circumstance has no one to help her. Not a government, not her family. And so I really understand when women and girls flee from being unemerted. I've been submitting affidavits to judges on their behalf based on my research into honor killing, which I doubt I would ever have done had I not first heard about honor killing so long ago in Kabul. And I promptly forgot about it because it's too... Horrifying. In terms of having told the outline of this story, is one of the things that you held back in terms of not wanting to reveal this to your family, uh, particularly your parents when you were alive, the conversion that you made under duress, and when we should stress that, but you did make at least a pro forma under duress conversion to Islam yes. to, as a survival tactic. Yes, and so interesting. I forgot about it. Then as I became immersed in the nature of Islam today, both those who are trying to reform it and those who are saying, no way, it cannot be reformed, I remembered. I had repressed it, and I remembered it, and I thought, well, I have to redeem my soul, and I have to tell the truth. My mother-in-law, in every way, made life very unpleasant, and I was at her mercy. She would steal my canned food, she stopped having the servants boil my water, which is how I got dysentery, and vegetables and fruits likewise. Or she simply forgot to remember to tell them to do something differently for me. She kept bothering me, and I thought, all right, maybe this will get her off my back. Maybe this will then, she'll leave me alone now. And I asked my husband, and he sort of just didn't want to deal with it. He, he became like an Afghan man who, and none of them will interfere with the rule of the roost of the mother-in-law. There was no party. There was no celebration. I didn't meet a mullah. I mean, she gave me a prayer rug. She gave me some prayer beads. And then, very soon thereafter, she was cursing me as a Yahud, as a Jew. So maybe even she didn't think that a Jew like me would convert for real. But I think you have a point. I think that I could not deal with that publicly. And now I have to, at a time when so many Muslims who are intellectuals, who choose to be secular, who choose to renounce Islam, are in such danger. And apostasy is considered a capital crime. So I stand both with their right to renounce Islam, and I stand with the religious Muslims who are hoping to reform Islam. You know, when you mention apostasy as a capital crime, I'm recalling that one of the things that finally convinced your husband to grant your divorce was in the negotiations. Your lawyers basically said, well, okay, if we go through with the courtroom battle, it's going to come out in public that he was he had told you that he was willing to convert to Judaism and live in America to marry you. Yes. Now, was that... That was to get an annulment. See, he annulment. would never agree to a divorce. And he said that I had a return, and the State Department in America said I had to leave. 
because I had entered on an Afghan passport. I never got the American one back. And I had a six-month visa. So I said, oh, gentlemen, I'm going to chain myself to the Statue of Liberty. I'm not leaving. But that was a protracted and interesting struggle. My husband would not agree to a divorce. So I had to move to an annulment track. And interestingly enough, my parents and my lawyers, there were three, didn't tell me what the grounds were for the annulments. And I, I read, I'm a researcher, this is curious. I didn't look into it. I didn't want to know. And what they said was that he'd agreed to convert to Judaism and to live in America. I don't know whether that is what got him to back off because he basically had nothing to do with the annulments. And is this something that you had told them about the relationship or did they just... No, no, they, they, they made, made this up. up. Okay, so they made whole that up. And how clever they were. Out of whole cloth. I think they were imagining what they would have hoped the scenario was. And they never told a soul. Nobody knew other than my brothers that I had gone all the way to the other side of the world is how my parents thought of it. And I think they expected I'd be back as I was. Having written this story, you know, in the half century since you've come back from Kabul, you've obviously led a very productive and event-filled life in the feminist movement. Has there ever been any thought on your part to to that as a memoir? Yes, I'm thinking about it now, but it would have to be compelling. I would have to really want to do it. I would have to need to do it. I would have to, and indeed, there there's no history of the second wave of feminism that covers it in depth or correctly. Every book that has come out, understandably, it's like, my team did this, and anyone who wasn't part of our clique didn't exist. So there's a lot of those around. The best I could do is tell only my own stories, and I've got some fabulous stories. I have some really colorful ones. I know where a lot of bodies are buried, and where a lot of love and a lot of cruelty and hypocrisy was practiced as among humanity, because feminists are, after all, human beings. I, I, I think also, by now, I have a very long and involved history as a Jewish activist and as a pro-Israel advocate, something I never thought I would have to become, but with the rise in anti-Semitism, my allies among feminists and on the left have been very misguided and very misled. So I've written about that. And I've also written about how feminists don't understand, even though they've opposed the burqa to their credit, they don't understand that even worse than right-wing conservative Christians are fundamentalist Muslim extremists. They really don't yet understand that. They do not see coming our way that they will be put in brokers, not just the women on the street that we see increasingly and who we say, oh, well, it's their right to do this. As long as one woman anywhere is on a murder because she refuses to veil, no woman is safe anywhere. And so many feminists have not seen that, I think, and intellectuals in general. And to see it, you then get demonized as a conservative and 
not seen as speaking freely the truth. So I think I have a lot of work cut out for me and what, whether I'm ready to tell my life memoir as opposed to just the years spent in the vineyards of women's freedom, I don't know. It's a good question. Well, we will see what happens as you sort through that. In the meantime, we have An American Bride in Kabul. It's published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and I have been speaking with the author, Phyllis Chesler, and this has been Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll join me for another episode soon. Thank you.